Note, this episode contains vivid descriptions of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City. It may be too intense for some listeners. This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and this is a story that you won't soon forget. Richard Petty won at Richmond the day before I was born in 1967. It was his sixth win in a row, and he would go on to win another four consecutive races. Ten straight wins. That's a record for the king that will never be broken. When I was a kid, I loved the Dallas Cowboys. Roger Staubach, Tony Dorsett, and my favorite football player of all time, Randy White. They were all coached by Tom Landry, who just so happened to share my birthday. My family lived in Alabama for a couple of years in the late 1970s. At school, I had to choose between Auburn and Alabama, or get beat up a lot. I chose the Crimson Tide, and they were coached by Bear Bryant, who also shared my birthday. But baseball was far and away my favorite sport back then, and I loved the Cincinnati Reds of the Big Red Machine era. In particular, I thought that Pete Rose walked on water. I was so proud when Charlie Hustle broke the all-time hit record on my 18th birthday. I've got to be honest with you. All these years later, I still wish that those were the most momentous events that ever took place on my birthday, September the 11th, 9-11. Back in his youth, Scotty Maxwell and some buddies built a car for the bomber division at Freeport Speedway on Long Island in New York. Tempers flared one night with Eddie Now behind the wheel. You got to remember, I was a you know, 16-year-old, 98-pound wrestler, you know, and uh, he uh, spun out the leader in a heat race. And um, don't you know, these boys came walking through a puddle. I said, if they go around that puddle, they're not going to kill us. But they went through the puddle and you know, proceeded to uh, womp on us for a while. Eddie went on to serve as a New York City police officer, and he worked for Junior Johnson and Associates on the weekend. Scotty also began work as a New York City policeman in 1984. Four years later, in 1988, he joined the FDNY, the New York City Fire Department. It was Eddie who got Scotty hooked up with a weekend warrior gig at Hendrick Motorsports with driver Ken Schrader. By chance, Scotty had happened to be at Pocono when one of Schrader's crew guys didn't show up. He was pressed into service then and there. This is how that deal was sealed. When I shook hand with Dale uh, Dale Miller, who was like the team manager at the time, uh, when I shook hands with him to say, yeah, sure, man, I'll be able to help you out this weekend. The Seagulls took a giant crap on our two hands, right? As as I was shaking hands, and we won the pole. We won the pole. So, you know, every race that I was there, we were looking for seagulls to crap back in my hands so we could win the pole. Scotty traveled to about half the races on the Winston Cup schedule while also working full-time at the fire department. To get time off to go racing, Scotty often swapped tours with his brothers in the fire department. 
He worked Christmas, worked Easter. He did whatever he needed to do to keep his wife, the fire department, and Hendrick Motorsports happy. He might have been listed as utility every year in Winston Cup Scene's team rosters, but his job was actually much more than that. Basically, I was, uh, I ran the gas and cleaned the windshield during pit stops, and, and I just was the rabbit that ran the parts back from the, you know, because the callers are so far away from the pit areas, and I just had enough motivation to get the shocks or whatever springs or whatever part they needed. Uh, Danny Heideke was my uh, roommate. He was the truck driver and jackman at the time, Gumby. And uh, whatever they needed, they just counted on me to do. Um, and I provided, a, you know, a whole lot of comedy and uh, levity and whatever they needed, I was there to do it. As a journalist, I've been able to experience some incredible things. One of the most memorable experiences of my career was the day that I spent with Scotty at the Jackson Heights Firehouse in Queens, New York, with hook and ladder 154 and engine 307. That day, I discovered what ball breaking between brothers really means. Later that year, Scotty joined the New York City Fire Department's Special Operations Command. Training for that highly specialized and elite group forced Scotty to step away from his weekend warrior role at Hendrick Motorsports. Five years later came 9-11. Scotty had recently been promoted to lieutenant. He was filling in at Engine 219 and Hook and Ladder 105 in Brooklyn for a brother fireman who was on vacation. It was only the second time he had ever worked at this particular firehouse. He was slated to work a 24-hour shift from 6 p.m. on Monday, September 10th, until 6 p.m. on Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001. At about 8.42 a.m. came a call that would change Scotty's life and the course of world history. He could actually see the World Trade Center from the firehouse. Something was very seriously wrong. Every company in Manhattan, a response about as large as the entire fire department in Charlotte, North Carolina, was headed that way. And then? Next thing you know, the second plane hits. So I have my crew. I introduce myself. I don't even know these guys. So, not a, you know, it's, so we're all milling around, getting ready to go. The second plane hits. They start sending all the Brooklyn companies. So we all line up, 10 or 11 fire trucks, and we're heading towards the Brooklyn Bridge. On the way to the Trade Center, 219 got a report of a fire at a bank just across the river. They had to go check it out. Scotty was furious. He was headed to the largest fire of his career, and he did not want to be diverted. It turned out to be a false alarm that saved his life. Instead of taking the Brooklyn Bridge, 219 headed into the Battery Tunnel. The tunnel ended maybe 500 feet from the foot of the World Trade Center. The next few minutes of this interview left me speechless. In more than 31 years as a journalist, I'd never before had tears literally streaming down my face. All I can bring myself to say is just listen. We get all the way through the tunnel, passing people that are running out the other way. Just as we come out the tunnel, everything goes black, like blacker than you can imagine, right? 
I'm in the front cab of the fire truck. I got four guys behind me. When I say guys, I mean three guys and a girl, right? Yeah. I don't want to have to. And yeah. Yeah. everything goes black. Everything goes black. Boom. The chauffeur skids the rig to a halt. We're just coming out of the tunnel. We're right coming up to West Street. And the radio goes dead silent for about a minute. I think that they hit the tunnel. Now we know it's a terrorist attack by now. I think they hit the tunnel, which means I'm just waiting for a giant wooja water to come and kill me. My guys, never comes. Five minutes goes by. Radio crackles back to life. Now we know that the the, uh, South Tower uh, had collapsed. It's only literally six, seven hundred feet yards away from where I am. I get out of the rig and we start walking up to West Street because we still can't see. There's people running for their lives. They're hurt. Everything's going on. Make a right onto West Street, pushing people through the tunnel. Come on, come on, come on. We get up to about as far as I get debris-wise, which is about less than 200 yards from where the South Tower is. And I'm looking up at the North Tower that's still burning. Now the radio is starting to crackle back to life. Guys are calling for help. Um, people are giving reports of what's going on and I take my guys. Now I used to, you know, I used to do a little coaching back in the old days. So I get my guys off the rig and I got their backs to the North tower. And as I'm watching the North tower, I'm trying to explain to these guys what I want them to do. And as I'm explaining, people are coming out of the North tower and hitting the ground just a couple hundred yards away from me. You can hear them. It's just like, boom, boom again. So I'm trying to tell my guys, okay, I want you to grab this equipment. I know we're an engine company, but we have to go and try and help. And as I'm talking, the North Tower collapses. I'm able to gang tackle my guys under and behind our fire truck, literally under the fire truck. Takes about two and a half seconds. Now the debris is coming down and hitting the rig. It sounds like a train going off the truss. This roar, this rumble. Again, everything goes black. And now pieces of debris are actually hitting my fire truck. Boom, boom, boom. And one of the guys is yelling, pray, pray. And I'm trying to get my face piece, but I can't get it because somebody's laying on top of it. So I just stick my face in, into, into my coat. And I'm laying there and I, Rick, I can't, I can't tell you. When you honestly think you're about to die, Honestly, no, no, that's all bets are off. It ends up being like a really, I was almost kind of giggling. Like, this is really the way I'm going to die. You know, nobody even knows I'm here. My wife and nobody knows where I am. And here I am under this fire truck being flattened by the North Tower. Stops. Silent. I know this is the first time you've heard the story, right? It's, it's silent, quiet. Yeah. Nobody's talking. We're talking, there has to be, at this point, five, 600 firemen, cops. Nobody's saying a word on the radio, dead silent. We sit there, let the smoke clear a little bit, the dust again, because if you ever watch the video, you'll see that cloud of dust. We get out from that, and I look and I go, one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm like, holy Hannah. We survived this. 
all of us. Lose anybody. Get out from behind the fire truck. Everything is on fire. Everything. Buildings all around us look like giant bombs hit them. Just metal sticking out of everywhere. Uh, at this point, there was uh, cars exploding under West Street. Um, buildings with five stories of fire. It looked like, honestly, I, I don't think I could ever put it on a on a on a TV or a movie or what. You know, it's, it's just very hard to explain what you're seeing now. Radio starts crackling back to life. Nobody knew there was nobody in charge. <laughs> there was everybody that was there was killed. We find a fire truck buried. I sure I sent you uh, one of the pictures of it. You see a guy standing on top of it. So we ended up walking all the way around because we couldn't get through right through the south overpass on West Street because the debris was blocking us. Tack helicopters are hovering overhead, fighter jets, radio comes back to life and they're telling us that they think there's another plane there, that the other shoe is going to drop, that this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Cars were exploding. Debris is flying over our heads. And we're walking into this theater of war, the beginning of World War III. We get over to the West Overpass. I'm leading my guys. Stop. I turn around. I said, I don't know what we're going to do in here. There's a fire truck right there. We're going to uncover it. We're going to try to uh, get some water going and try to put some fires out. And I can't guarantee that we're leaving here today. One of the guys grabs me and goes, this young kid had a year on the job, grabs me and goes, let's go. And then I knew that I had young guys, but I had good guys. We ended up uncovering that fire truck, getting it to work, getting water through it, stretching a line to the river, to a fireboat, putting out fires all around us, trying to make our way closer and closer to um, where we thought the people were trapped. Scotty had helped detail Ladder 105 that morning, and all six men on that rig died, including firefighter John Chapura, firefighter Frank Palumbo, firefighter Dennis Oberg, firefighter Henry Miller Jr., firefighter Thomas R. Kelly, and Captain Vincent Brunton. Engine 219 was in a long line of trucks before being diverted to the false alarm. Every hero on each of the other trucks in that line was also killed. Later that night, I wanted nothing to do with the birthday cake and ice cream that my wife had brought home for me that day. Hell was unfolding on television. How could I possibly ever celebrate my birthday again? I tried to call Scotty that night. No answer. I tried again. No answer. I dialed his number two or three more times that night. No answer. When I got to the Winston Cup scene office the next morning, I started calling again. And again, and again, and again. It wasn't until late that afternoon that he finally answered. 
I don't know that I've ever been so relieved to hear anyone's voice on the other end of a phone line. He doesn't remember us talking that day, but it doesn't matter. I'll never forget it. I honestly believe that my guardian angel, I know who it is. I don't talk about that very often. Um, saved my life that day. I should have been dead. I literally was two feet away from where I was standing. I'd have been, I would have been killed. Um, I could have been killed any time during that day. It was such a dangerous scene. I spent 10 months, 10 months digging for people's remains there. Um, every other day, every third day, we spent 24 hours there. It was something that had to be done that only we could do. Um, it was terrible. We had to take care of families. I, we lost 343 firemen that day. 343. 117 of them were personal friends of mine. Every place that I went to work after that, because I was still a covering guy, like Rescue 5, I went right back to special operations a couple days after 9-11 because we lost so many guys. Every, all five of those rescue companies, most of the squad companies in Hazmat, they were all there and lost everybody. So we had to replace those guys and train those guys. Plus, we had to take care of the widows. We had to take care of uh, uh, the families. We had to go back. You know, I first person I went to look for after when I was able to get home was a guy who uh, handed out towels at this gym I went to, and he was a World War II vet, but he was... He was the goods. He was captured in the uh, Battle of Bulge, and uh, twice, matter of fact, he was captured. <laughs> and he, uh, I said, Mike, what, what, what do I feel? What is, what, what is going on? He goes, Scotty. He goes, when I was fighting World War II, and somebody would go down, we would keep going. The corpsmen or medics would come and get him. You got to go back and get your guys. As devastating as that day was, talking about it has helped Scotty cope. He didn't read about 9-11 in a book. He didn't watch a documentary. He was there, and he experienced it firsthand. There's probably less than 100 guys that were there, actually there for the collapse of the Trade Center that survived. Less than 100. So imagine if you could go to Pearl Harbor and talk to somebody that was on one of those ships and survive. Imagine. So it's, it's almost a duty to do. Plus, you know... I was a fireman for 26 years. That's the worst thing I ever saw. Sure isn't the only thing I ever saw. A year or two after the attacks, Scotty joined a new firehouse. He took a group from there to a race at Dover. And whether or not he was actually skeptical or just busting Scotty's chops, one of the guys didn't quite seem to believe that Scotty had once worked in NASCAR. He was about to discover otherwise. We're going to Dover, and Dover's got the men's room. It's a big, giant communal, uh, like a trough. So we all had this long drive down from New York. We get out, we're all in there, and Richard Petty's, like, in using the bathroom. And he looks over, <laughs> he looks, I, I look over, and he's, my buddy's standing here that doesn't believe that I race, and he looks, you know, he's staring over Richard Petty standing there, and I'm like, hey, King, how you doing? He looks over, he goes, Scotty, where the heck have you been, man? I ain't seen you in about five years, you know, because he's sharp. <laughs> and that was it. Then he, be- he finally believed me that I actually worked on a race team. 
Scotty retired after being injured in a 2014 emergency response. Well, we, uh, we just had a fire in the Bronx with those reports of uh, some kids trapped and um, we call it making a push. So it took my team of rescue guys and we went up a ladder and tried to make it into this this room of this building that was very well involved in fire. It was a pretty big building. And uh, halfway through, the fire kind of chased us uh, to the stairs where I was uh, lucky enough to use my guys as human landing pads. <laughs> <laughs> so I got burnt a little bit and I inhaled uh, some super heated air and that inflamed my lungs to the point where I really couldn't uh, go back and I tore up my knee. And I was on the stretcher being wheeled out of there and my guys were like, uh, enjoy your retirement, Lou. Today, Scotty Maxwell still goes to the races at Riverhead Speedway on Long Island. He's still a racer at heart. He plays a lot of golf and spends a lot of time in Florida. He just became a grandfather. Life is okay, and I can't think of anybody who deserves it more. In memory of every person who died in the 9-11 attacks, and those we've lost because of that day, we will never forget. Glorious Racing Stories is a production of Dirty Mo Media, hosted by me, Rick Houston. This show is produced by Andrew Curland. Artwork is by Sean Sin. Special thanks to Leah Vaughn, executive producers Mike Davis and Jason Schultz. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo. Dirty Mo.